Hello, I'm Joe Garrity of the Close-Up Foundation, and welcome to Building Bridges. Since 1977, the Close-Up Foundation has provided a teacher's program for all educators that brought their students from across the nation to Washington, D.C. for a course on civic engagement and empowerment. Now, in an effort to stay in contact throughout the year, we're offering our Close-Up Teacher Program podcast, Building Bridges. Today on Building Bridges, we'll be honoring the legacy and contributions of some very important immigrants to the United States over our long history. Joining us today for this session are Ian Freed, John Cheeseman, and Dr. Dan Wallace. The session was recorded on June 16th and 17th, 2021. Welcome. Here today, we are going to start with John Cheeseman, who will begin our discussion on immigration by taking us on a brief run through human history at warp speed. And for those who may have seen a great show, and I would recommend on YouTube, you can get to catch it. James Burke had a series on a long time ago called Connections on PBS former columnist, columnist with the Scientific America and historian. And he would do these type of things. So it's going to be similar to that where you go through these large subjects. It's like going through the Big Bang and then going through a, down to American history from that beginning. So hang on. So human immigration, for which all intents and purposes is the underlying cause of what we call immigration. So John, we all know from contemporary science that the birthplace of modern humans was located on the continent of Africa. Please give us a quick rundown on the migration of humans out of Africa to all corners of the earth. Yeah, Dan, that's, it'll have to be at light speed. Uh, before I go into it, I just want to caution people that the numbers I'm going to be giving you, or the range of numbers, are a lot of them are still under dispute, uh, paleontology, archaeology, uh, I'm just going to give you the latest numbers, but um, they are subject to change as more research in the future is, is conducted. But when we talk about modern humans or Homo sapiens, uh, they arrive on this planet sometime between, again, 200,000 to 500,000 years ago. It may be even sooner than that, but again, it can change. Um, the human beings, as you said, uh, pretty much arise, as far as we know, on the continent of Africa. And they begin leaving in large numbers about 60 to 90,000 years ago. There is evidence of earlier migrations, a couple of some archaeological sites found in the Middle East, and then one more recently in China that suggests that maybe there were humans leaving as early as over 100,000 years ago, but the big migration is somewhere between 60 to 90,000 years ago. Um, they'll be reaching places, say, like Australia between 40 to 50,000 years ago. And here to the Americas, the numbers, the current numbers, stayed somewhere between 10 to 20,000 years ago that modern humans made it to this continent. And they're out into the Pacific Islands uh, pretty much over the past 5,000 years. So um, every continent except for Antarctica is pretty much populated by humans uh, in what is considered very geologically recent times. So that's that's the latest I can give you on the out-migration from okay. So 
We can see that humans have populated all four corners of the planet, yet they have not stayed put. They have continued to migrate from country to country, continent to continent, and not always voluntarily, for example, the African slave trade. Now tie this, aha, here we go. Now tie this to American, to American immigration history. Yeah, that, that, that's a good one, Dan. Uh, but you make, before I go into what, you know, to the point of, about uh, North America, um, you're absolutely correct. Migration is really two things, voluntary and involuntary. And uh, we always, when we look at immigration, say vis-a-vis -vis U.S. history, we always look a lot at the voluntary migration of, you know, Im immigrants coming to America, looking for better opportunities so, or freedoms, whatever it may be. But uh, a large number have come here involuntarily as well. Uh, and there are many reasons why you have these involuntary movements. And this, of course, covers all of human history. All human beings have experienced this at one time or another. You have things like droughts and famines, things that be, can be caused by climatic or environmental conditions changing in a part of the world. Uh, we certainly see that with the last uh, ice age when it was believed that uh, polar ice caps trapping up water uh, lowered the sea levels by three to 400 feet, which created the Bering Sea land bridge by which we believe the first humans migrated from Asia into the American continent. Uh, of course, that land bridge is gone now because the earth warmed up and the, the ice melted and the seas rose. So you can see how changes in uh, geology and all that climatic conditions can greatly influence uh, migrations of peoples. But you also have things like war, uh, political upheavals that can also influence human migration. Uh, we saw this in the African continent. Uh, there were wars in Sub-Saharan Africa. People are taken as captives. What do you do with all these captive people you have? Well, you find a customer that's willing to buy them, enslave them, and send them to another part of the world to do work, which is a good example of the African slave trade, both off the west coast of Africa or the east coast of Africa into uh, the Middle East and Asia. So you saw a great uh, diaspora that was not voluntary for the people involved um, out of Africa. So, and it still continues to this day. You see refugee populations uh, fleeing war-torn areas, moving to safer zones. And even when the war or the problem is done with, a lot of those people decide to stay put where they move to instead of returning home. Uh, so those are some of the reasons, but by 1776, the 13 colonies that will make up the 13 original states of our country uh, were already a very diverse uh, place uh, due to those two types of migrations. Uh, you had the Native American Indian peoples uh, that were already here. They are the first people into the Americas, as far as we know. Uh, then, of course, you had the European migration the age of exploration, all the great powers of Europe fanning out across the world, looking for new trade routes, new resources, new lands, all of this. And then, of course, we have, as we just finished talking about, the Africans that were brought over primarily as slaves to work the new world, the agricultural, you know, brought in by the Spanish and the Portuguese in the very beginning. And if you look at just, say, the European 
sense of the population. You have great diversity. You have English, Welsh, Scottish, Irish, German, French, Dutch, Scandinavian, Spanish, and Portuguese. You also have a very wide range of religious belief going from the Native American Indians uh, religions um, to beliefs that were brought here by um, African slaves. You have the various Christian denominations of the Europeans, Catholicism, Anglicanism, you know, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, uh, Baptists, Anabaptists, Quakers, and you even have Judaism being practiced here in uh, the colonies. So by 1776, by our measurements today, this was a very diverse place to begin with. So with that said, I'm, and I'm glad you laid all these out. And again, for our audience, we've done it very quickly. So I don't know about getting into small details and the rest. I understand that, but you yeah. know, we'll do that. But now we have the beginnings of the United States, as we call it, created from the 13 colonies. And then the Constitution comes along in 1787. Yet for a good part of our early history, the federal government really did not directly involve itself with immigration. States started to do that, but the federal government doesn't. Directly. So right. when did this change? As you, as you say, it, it, it was sort of a weird thing with the states really in charge of a lot of it in the beginning. And it's, it's, it's kind of gradual, and it has to do really with uh, conditions concerning passengers, humans, uh, passengerage on ships. Mm -hmm. uh, there, was a, there was an act in 1819 that just looked at passenger accommodations on ships coming and going from the United States. But it really begins, Dan, with the Passenger Act of 1855, which will create a complex known as Castle Garden, also known as Castle Clinton, on the southern tip of, of Manhattan in New York City. This will be the first receiving station for immigrants. Um, in the United States. This predates, obviously, Ellis Island. Uh, the federal government is beginning to take an interest in who is coming to America. They want to know who these people are, where are they coming from, are they bringing any type of skills with them? Um, so it's, again, we're, being, we're coalescing as a nation, the, the, uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution is creating demands for labor, skilled labor in many cases. So Castle Garden is sort of this beginning of the federal interest. And believe it or not, when it closes in 1890, uh, 35 years later, it is estimated 8 million people pass through Castle Garden coming into the United States. Now, during this time, you have in 1875, the Page Act being passed. This is really considered to be one of the first uh, restrictions on any type of immigration. And the Page Act will restrict immigration of Chinese women into the United States. This is followed uh, seven years later with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which kind of completes the picture. Now that's including Chinese men in this, this restriction. Both of these acts were a response to the Burlingame Sewer Treaty of 1868, which was a treaty between the United States and China, yes. which had a provision in the treaty allowing for immigration of Chinese. But because of misreading of cultures, misunderstanding of mm -hmm. cultures, um, people on the West Coast of the United States became very suspicious of Chinese immigration. Uh, they were thinking that they were being imported by unscrupulous business operators as, as coolie labor. 
uh, as many Americans saw that as just another form of slavery. So they became very suspicious of it. But then you also have the issues, cultural attitudes based on race and ethnicity, suspicions in those areas that also added to this problem. So as you can see, uh, this is an age old issue when, when it comes to dealing with immigration and it's right there at the beginning when the federal government is involved in regulating immigration. And so John, I wanna to just touch on that for a second because I just wanna to say to you, I'm glad you brought that up. This is a topic for a whole nother podcast. I would also say to the audience to actually look into the new books coming out constantly about the uh, about this particular era because it is the Chinese coming in during the gold rush, how they were treated, the racism that went on. Laws was restricted them and African-Americans in California of actually going into, into gold and mining gold and the rest. And then the building of the railroad down to the point, as you were talking about, that Chinese workers actually were even better, quicker, more precise. They were able to put together their groups and teams, but they were being used as labor busters. And that became a big issue with the Irish and others seeing them as a threat, being paid less money. And the amount of lives that were lost in building the railroad. And finally, when the railroad was connected, and this is something we've talked offline about. Finally, when the railroad was connected from the east to the west, there's a great photo of it. There are no Chinese in that photo at all. They did not allow them to be in that, so they would never take their place as far as putting this together. But I'll stop there and just say there's a lot that goes on with that, that you know, history doesn't really tell us or not recognize. But John, in our next segment for the time, Joe and Ian are going to be covering more recent times, beginning with the Ellis Island experience. And that's why I love the fact that you brought up the original spot, Castle Garden. Um, can you give us a story of someone who passed through Castle Garden going back to that time period? Yeah, Dan, I'm, I choose to pick a man by the name of Samuel Gompers, who shouldn't be a stranger to, to most Americans, hopefully, uh, who lived between 1850 to 1924. Samuel Gompers is known um, as one of the titans of the labor movement here in the United States. Mm -hmm. is uh, the father of the American Federation of Labor, which was uh, created for skilled laborers. And then in the early 20th century, he joined forces with John L. Lewis, who was the head of the Congress of Industrial Organization, which was a union more focused on unskilled labor. And they joined those two mighty unions together to where we still have them today, the AFL-CIO, which has its headquarters building just north of the White House on 16th Street. So Gompers is an interesting story because he himself is the child of immigrants. His parents, Samuel and Sarah Gompers, were originally from Amsterdam and emigrated from Amsterdam to London. His father, Samuel, was a cigar maker. And uh, they settled into the um, east end of London in a poor, the poor Spitalfields neighborhood. And there, Samuel, uh, when he was six years old, this was where he's born. Um, six years old, he's, he's enrolled in the Jewish Free School in London, which was established in 1732, still, still exists to this day, where he will receive a basic education. Four years later, at the age of 10, he has to leave school to become an apprentice cigar maker to help uh, earn money for the impoverished family. And even when he's working as a cigar maker, he still continues on through some night schools that were available where he will learn Hebrew and study the Talmud, which he said was likened to going to law school. It sharpened his mind 
and he and it always instilled in him an interest to constantly improve himself through education reading he was a voracious reader um he was the ideal student for any teacher it sounds like for reading it but in 1863 due to dire financial circumstances the Gompers family um, immigrated to the United States. Um, and it just so happens they leave in late June of 1863 and they arrive at Castle Garden at the southern tip of Manhattan in July uh, 1863, right during what we now know as the New York City draft riot, which was a draft riot instigated by uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, a new uh, draft policy that was uh, needed to gain new new bodies for the Union Army. Um, and this had been, and you put that together with his previously release of the Emancipation Proclamation uh, the, the previous year. And newspapers in New York City and peace, the peace Democrats in New York City were warning the New York uh, immigrant population of Irish and Germans that uh, these uh, newly emancipated slaves will now be coming to the North to take away their jobs. And here they are being drafted to go off to fight the war to provide those former slaves, if you could sort of see the circular logic going on here. Um, that basically stewed up a big, big riot. Now you could get out of the draft if you could pay for a substitute. Beginning of the Civil War, it was $100, but now by the time of the draft rights, it's anywhere between two to $300. The average laborer that day, that there's no in the world they could have raised that kind of money. Only the very wealthy could have afforded that. Um, just as an aside note, Ian, um, our esteemed colleague, Ian Fried, came across an interesting piece uh, concerning Joseph Pulitzer, uh, publishing, publisher, um, it's extraordinaire, um, after whom the Pulitzer Prize today in journalism and literature is named for. He was actually a poor immigrant from Hungary, his family having lost their fortune, who was enticed to come to the United States by recruiters from the state of Massachusetts who promised to pay them one of these, these um, bounties if they would emigrate to the United States and fight in the Union Army. So that's how Joseph Pulitzer came to the United States. So another interesting immigrant story during the Civil War. But anyway, um, this draft riot was really the worst in American history. Um, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people were killed, probably about the same number of people injured. Uh, it started, you know, the local police force couldn't put them down with their own people. The local militia tried to do it, couldn't do it. Finally, the mayor of New York um, telegraphed the War Department said, you know, man, I need some help here. This is, this is chaos. So the War Department are ordered uh, troops, New York troops, from who had just completed fighting at the Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, on railroad trains, rushed them into New York City, you know, Dan, they fired, they, they tried bayonet charges, they tried running up the battle lines, firing their rifled muskets, that didn't work. Finally, they had to bring in their smooth, smoothboard Napoleon cannons, load them, load them up with, with a canister, um, which basically turns that cannon into a giant shotgun. Yes. And they fired canister into the crowds to disperse them. That finally did the job up in Brooklyn because it had spread from Manhattan 
to uh, to Brooklyn, uh, down even over to Staten Island. So this is when Gompers lands in America. The family he talks about um, how this mob, this lynch mob, coming down the, uh, the the wharfs of Lower Manhattan. When they got, they were looking for black sailors on these ships. And when they came to the ship that Gompers and his family and other immigrants were on. They formed basically a, a wall, a human shield between the lynchers and black crewmen on board the ship. Coppers talked about how these crewmen had been very nice to the immigrants. So they were sort of returning the favor. Once the lynch mob realized that they weren't going to get through these people, they gave up and went down to the next ship in line. So I always thought what a fascinating way to be introduced to the country that you want to join. Um, is to land into the middle of this draft slash race riot. So that was Samuel Gomper's story on his uh, immigrant travels to the United States. You are listening to Building Bridges. Thanks to John and Dan for giving us some insight to the early period of immigration to the United States. Now to bring us through to the 20th century, Joe Garrity and I, Ian Freed, are looking at the impact of Ellis Island on the American cultural tapestry. Joe, Ellis Island was actually the first time the federal government decided they needed to play a major role when it came to accepting immigrants into the country. That's right, Ian. Prior to 1892, the federal government played a very limited role in regulating immigrants coming to the United States. But as we know, we had always been a nation of immigrants, as John clearly told us. Uh, But since the 1840s, immigrants have been flooding to the United States. Most of the states, you know, they had their own ways and their own laws, and they mostly were about keeping out sick people or criminals. Although, as John mentioned in the previous segment, we do begin to see some laws limiting immigrants from China. But compared to most countries around the globe, the United States basically had an open border. Now, the states would process the new immigrants, so we knew who was entering the country. But New York City, for example, processed 8 million immigrants coming into the city before the federal government ever opened Ellis Island. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, so it's a big number. Finally, with the numbers growing exponentially, the federal government needed to get involved. So on January 1st, 1892, Ellis Island opens in New York City, replacing the state-run Castle Clinton. And for the next 62 years, 12 million immigrants came through Ellis Island largely from Ireland, Italy, Spain, Russia, Germany, Poland, and other European countries. But of all the people coming through during those peak years, only 2% were returned to their country of origin. So, and most of those were for medical issues. So, but after World War I, the country becomes more isolationist and Congress passes the 1924 immigration law which severely restricts the numbers who can immigrate to the United States. Only 2.9 million people are processed through Ellis Island over the next 30 years. However, to give you some perspective about this great migration to America, 
the National Park Service has said 40% of the country, or roughly 132 million people, can trace their roots back to Ellis Island. Oh, man, those numbers. 40% of the country, 132 million Americans. That is quite an impact. And, you know, it really demonstrates how we are a country of immigrants. Joe, I know we both are examples of those numbers. Both of us are descended by uh, from those who went through the doors of Ellis Island. And you actually happen to know some details about the journey your grandparents took to get here. Yes, that's right. And we are both part of that 40%. But yeah, I know a little bit. I've done some research and I've had some aunts and uncles that have done research. I've been lucky. And then my grandparents were alive. So I, you know, for a good part of my life. Yeah. So that has allowed me to learn quite a bit about their, their journey. So at the age of 21, Bridget Casserly McGuire, my grandmother, left the town of Westport in County Mayo, Ireland for New York City. She was sponsored by her cousin, Mrs. Scanlon, and she always referred to her as Mrs. Scanlon. I have no idea what her first name was. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> but my, my grandmother would work, you know, providing domestic care for a Jewish family in Manhattan, a family that she would become very close to over, over many years. But when she left County Mayo, Bridget set sail in fourth class, or it was known as steerage, which meant she was crammed into the bows of the ship with no restroom and not seeing the light of day. Man. And they told her the voyage could take anywhere, anywhere from two to six weeks, depending on the weather and the wind. But Bridget's voyage took four weeks. Some people throwing up every time the waves kicked Ugh. up. Yes. The buckets for the bathroom breaks would regularly be knocked over. Ugh. Horrible smells were just completely overwhelming. And... The frigid December air must have just chilled her to the bone. And then you have the heartbreak of leaving her family behind in Ireland that left her in tears almost every day of the journey. And it's a journey we can barely imagine in modern times. And it, as you said, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking and it's telling that so many people were willing to leave their loved ones in order to make that permanent move to America. I, I can't imagine how difficult that decision was for them. So... When she arrived, how was your grandmother treated when her ship finally made it to New York City? Well, she clearly wasn't a wealthy passenger, right? So um, there were passengers on board that were treated very differently because they did have money. As her ship, the USS Cedric, arrives in New York City on December 24th, the first and second class passengers were dropped off by Clinton Castle because they were processed on the boat. The third and fourth class passengers, however, were fumigated. Dang. Yeah, before they boarded a ferry for their short voyage out to Ellis Island, but right past the Statue of Liberty. But they had made it to America, and in her case, never to return to Ireland again. And they could actually see the statue's glory as they were no longer in the bows of the ship for the first time in nearly a month. And it is a breathtaking view as the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island stood before them on that cold Christmas Eve. But going through the process at Ellis Island could be intimidating to new immigrants. And for for Bridget, her story is interesting because in Europe, when you wrote down your birthday um, on an official document, you put the day first, then the month, 
right year right Right. well since americans always do it the other way around the month and then the day and then the year they recorded her birthday as september 1st 1897 instead of january 9th 1897 man so what does she do for the rest of her life she celebrates her birthday on september 1st oh (laughs) (laughs) gives you a little glimpse into the mindset but she never she never tells anyone else about this era for 41 years until her grandson, yours truly, <laughs> yours truly. <laughs> was born on January 9th. Then she told the family for the first time but it, that it was her actual birthday. But she had never told anyone, not even her husband, Patrick Garrity. You know, that, that's a really good example of immigrant adaptation. You know, my grandmother... She came from a small village in Poland and never actually knew the date of her birth. It wasn't important there. So she just picked one out when she had to fill out the forms, and that became her birthday. So it it happens uh, at the clerk's office in Ellis Island in many ways. So anyway, that was your grandmother's arrival story. How about your grandfather? All right. So Patrick Garrity had grown up 12 miles away from Bridget in County Mayo, the small town of Castle Bar. But he did not know my grandmother. Um, and I also, I just found this out doing research for this podcast, but my great-grandfather had come over in the 1880s and had worked on building the Brooklyn Bridge. But Impressive. The, yeah. Um, the conditions were so brutal and that so many people died building that bridge that Michael Garrity returns to Ireland. I understand. <laughs> yes. But his son, Patrick, my grandfather, left Ireland after the the uh, the Irish War of Independence in 1916. Now, he deeply believed that the Irish should have their freedom and they should be freed of English control, but he was never one of these Irishmen that was bitter towards the British. In fact, he moved to Liverpool to work on the docks for a few years before the idea of coming to America filled his imagination. So he made enough money in England to be able to afford a third-class ticket to New York City. Now, his trip over was difficult. He, too, used a bucket for the bathroom, and they were packed in like sardines on the lower level, but they did get plenty of fresh air. And that that did make a big difference. Yeah, there was no bed to sleep in, and you kind of slept where you stood or where you sat. Um, And his journey took a few few weeks as well. But if you ever mentioned their journeys to America... He was the first to tell you that grandma had it much worse in steerage, where she was basically treated like an animal for a month. Um, And grandpa, when he arrives, even got a passport agent who took the time to get the spelling of the last name correct, even with the silent GH. He was definitely the exception because most Garrity's that came over saw all different spellings. In fact, the original Irish spelling may be the least common spelling of all the different variations. Yeah, I know that story. I know, you know, it's interesting. You hear a lot about people's names being changed by immigration clerks at Ellis Island. Um, my family, we were freed kin, and for some reason we lost the kin, and now we're freed. Um, so it happens to probably tens of thousands of families. Um, so Patrick arrives in the United States, arrives in New York City. What did he do when he gets here? Patrick Garrity went on to work construction in New York City like so many immigrants, helping to build the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, 
and the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, among other buildings in Manhattan. As New York City exploded into a city of skyscrapers and architectural masterpieces designed by famous architects, but built by recent immigrants, like my grandfather. Hallelujah. Yeah, (laughs) and my grandfather, too, never returned to Ireland. His brothers come over. Martin and Stephen come over a couple years after him. Stephen joined the military, also a very common path for new immigrants. But Martin and my grandfather eventually open a bar in New York City after Prohibition ends and construction work has slowed down during the Great Depression. Well, that explains um, a lot about what I know about you, Joe. I, I, aside, I, but go ahead. But actually, for my grandfather, it's shocking because it was always one drink and he put the, he put the alcohol away. So That is impressive. But maybe he learned some lessons with his time at the bar. So after a couple of years, they sell it. Martin takes his money out returns to Ireland for a visit, and he meets his wife on the return journey. So they settle in County Mayo, and they he never comes back to the United States. But my grandfather, like so many immigrants, continued to send money back to Ireland to his family for many years. So my grandparents' stories are very similar to so many other immigrants in this country, so common, yet so profound. And, you know, Joe, what these stories tell us is both the difficult journey many of them made here in order to become Americans and the numerous reasons for that journey. My grandparents on my father's side and my great-grandparents on my mother's side all went through Ellis Island on their immigration journey to America. Unfortunately, I never got the detailed stories that you were able to hear, but like you for this podcast, I did some research. And I used uh, what information I had to go to the official Ellis Island website, and I was able to find some information there. So what did you find, Ian? Well, it's interesting. If you know some names and roughly the dates your relatives arrived, you can find their names on the ship's manifest. You can see information such as the ship they arrived on, who they traveled with, even who paid for the trip. And in the case of my father's parents, we always assumed they traveled and arrived together. But I found out that they actually arrived a year apart. In 1927, for my grandfather, Isidore, who, using the first letter, I'm named after, and then my grandmother, Betty, came in 1928. And I learned Betty was actually called Basha at the time. And we thought she was 24 when she arrived, but on the manifest, her age is listed at 27. So there were a number of surprises. Uh, Like your grandparents, mine never returned to the villages in Poland or Russia from where they came. And... The truth is they wouldn't have wanted to. There was extreme anti-Semitism at the time in that area. And having the opportunity to come to America was viewed as escaping to have a better life where you and your children could find success. And importantly, you could practice your religion freely. I just wish I had understood all this when I was younger so I could have asked more questions about their journeys like you were able to. Um, My grandmother, though, never would talk about her difficult life in Poland. Um, This was made more tragic by the fact her entire family that she left, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, were all murdered in the Holocaust. And from what my father told me, his parents were racked by guilt that they couldn't get more of their relatives out before World War II. Yeah, that that must have been extremely difficult to live with. Yeah, indeed, Joe. But you have to look at it this way. In coming to the United States, they did make the right decision both for themselves and their children. Both of their sons, my father Jack and my uncle Ed, were very successful in their fields, and all the grandchildren have done well for themselves. It is the reason, in the end, 
why so many people leave their homelands to come here. And, and just as an aside, I want to give a plug to the Ellis Island website. If you go to the site and click on Explore Your Family History, the registration is free and you can find your own family's arrival story. Yes, it, it is fascinating to do this research on your own family and how your ancestors become really a part of the fabric of this country. And your story is a great example of the fact that while some people came to America for opportunities and economic opportunities, right. others were escaping their homelands for, for much more serious reasons. Exactly. And, but either way, these immigrants have made important contributions to the country. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell the story about uh, one of my political heroes who's in the latter, territory, uh, latter, latter category, John, Tom Lantosh. Um, he was born in Budapest, Hungary, to an upper middle class Jewish family in 1928. But when the Nazis invaded Hungary, he was sent to a work camp where he and the other captives built and maintained an important bridge on the Vienna-Budapest train line. Every time the bridge was bombed, he and his fellow captives would cheer to themselves, but they also knew that they would then have to rebuild the bridge. He did escape one time at first, was captured, and in his own words, he was beaten to a pulp. Oh my God. How, how does he live? How does he survive that situation? Well, one night, apparently a guard wasn't paying close attention and Lantosh slipped away. And at that time, he had blonde hair and blue eyes, so he was able to pass as an Aryan and snuck back into Budapest, where he found the home of the heroic Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg, who, as you know, probably saved over 10,000 Jews through forged passports, secret hiding places, things like that. And because of Lantosh's fair appearance, he ran secret missions for Wallenberg, such as delivering medicine or food to Jews in hiding. Once the Russians took over Hungary and the war ended, Lantosh was free, but found out all the rest of his family had been killed at Auschwitz. He did study economics for a while at the University of Budapest, but in 1947, he was awarded a Hillel Foundation scholarship to study at the University of Washington in Seattle. So he comes to the United States. He arrived first, of course, on Ellis Island with only a salami to his name, which was quickly confiscated by customs officials. My guess is that they ate it themselves personally. <laughs> That's a pretty good guess. Yeah. Uh, and I know his remarkable life does not end there. That's so true. After he worked jobs and studied hard, he not only graduated from the University of Washington, but he then earned his PhD in international economics at UCAL Berkeley and then taught economics for 30 years at San Francisco State University. In 1978, his life took a turn. He got a fellowship to work in Washington for a year for a senator. And that senator turned out to be one Joseph Biden from Delaware. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And, and Lantos, you know, was a very smart guy, enjoyed his work in the Senate so much that he decided to run for Congress when he returned home to California. And he won a seat in 1980, becoming the first and only Holocaust survivor to be a member of Congress. So, how did his experience living through World War II in Hungary? shape his congressional career? Well, as you can imagine, he became a champion of human rights. He once remarked that his whole life was preparation to be chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And in that role, he did things such as demand that Japan apologize for its wartime sex slavery for the benefit of its military, declared Turkey's mass killing of Armenians a genocide, and criticized China for its human rights abuses. 
These were not all helpful politically, but they were actions, actions that Tom Lantos, with his own history in mind, felt compelled to make. He was known as the conscience of foreign policy in Washington. He always remembered his past. And just to tell you, upon announcing his retirement the month before his death in 2008, Representative Lantos stated, it is only in the United States that a penniless survivor of the Holocaust and a fighter in the anti-Nazi underground could have received an education, raised a family, and had the privilege of serving the last three decades of his life as a member of Congress. He continued, I will never be able to express fully my profoundly felt gratitude to this great country. That really is the story of America, a nation of immigrants, a nation like no other country on earth. We are not an ethnic group. We are built upon the idea that all people are created equal and all have the right to self-government. Very true, Joe. Uh, but you know, we should remember, however, that the difficult journey doesn't end when the immigrant steps out of the doors of Ellis Island. Uh, as you know, there's a history in this country that when the first wave of immigrants from one group start arriving on our shores, there is an initial reaction of prejudice. That is, that is unfortunately very true. I know that at one time there were signs that said, help wanted, Irish need not apply. And there were similar reactions to Italians, Chinese, Germans, all at one time or another. Yeah, and but for most groups, uh, by the time the second generation settles in, our parents, they fully embrace their American identity, though many still celebrate the culture of their forefathers, as all of us have experienced. Most cities have parades and fairs celebrating certain groups, you know, whether it's for Chinese New Year, or Greek festivals, Russian fairs, as well as so many others. America seems unique in that we can all be fully American and fully our ethnic selves at the same time. Yes, definitely. You know, and some may come for opportunities, some may come to escape oppression, but we all become American. And that is the facet that separates the United States from most other countries. You know, that's true. And, and you know, that reminds me of the story that Madeleine Albright likes to tell. You know, she's obviously best known as Bill Clinton's Secretary of State, the first woman to hold that position. But importantly, she's also an immigrant. Her family escaping Czechoslovakia twice, once when Nazi Germany invaded because her father was a target as a diplomat for what the government that the Nazis overthrew. So they arrive in Britain in 1939, where they stay until the war ends. And then when they return to Prague, her father returns to a government job, but then the Soviet Union invades in 1948, and Albright's family once again has to flee, and this time they go to the United States. And from this experience, being a refugee in two different parts of the world, Albright explains what is special to her about America. She says, when we lived in Britain after escaping the Nazis, the people there would say, we are sorry for your troubles and hope that you have everything you need. By the way, when will you be leaving to go back home? <laughs> but in America, people said, we are sorry for your troubles and hope that you have everything you need. By the way, when will you become a citizen? That really is the difference. Here, anyone can eventually become an American. Very true, very true, Ian. Now, we'd be remiss if we don't mention that while anyone could become an American, it has been particularly difficult for some groups. Right. And no doubt there were choices made by the U.S. industrialists in the late 19th century. They could have turned to the freedmen 
to provide inexpensive labor to build our great cities, but they chose to bring over white men from Europe rather than free black men from our own country. The great irony is the Statue of Liberty was given to the United States by France to honor the Emancipation Proclamation and the victory over the slave states and slavery, only to see the statue become a beacon for new immigrants to come to the U.S. to work in place of hiring men freed by the Emancipation and the signing of the 13th Amendment. That definitely is ironic. It is. And it was a huge decision that would affect the lives of millions on two separate continents, and clearly a decision that was based on racism. Not to say that takes away anything from the great contribution immigrants made for this country, but rather to put it all in an honest historical context. I agree. We should definitely recognize that factor, as well as how difficult it is to be an immigrant as part of celebrating their essential contributions to this country. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you, and I couldn't agree more, Ian. You are listening to Building Bridges. Thank you for joining us today on Building Bridges. I want to thank Ian Freed, Dr. Dan Wallace, and John Cheeseman for joining us today as well. As always, I am Joe Garrity, the host of Building Bridges, and a special thanks to our editor, Daniel Pineda, and David Moran for our original theme music. This has been Building Bridges, a close-up teacher program production, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.